Kelly and Kelly. This is Record Club, the podcast where people tell personal stories about how seminal albums impacted their lives. My name is Louise Burns. I'm a musician, producer, and your host. And on the show, you're going to hear stories in front of audiences from our Record Club nights. At these musical gatherings, we pick one classic album and invite storytellers to share personal tales of how that album intersected with their lives. For this episode of Record Club, we're dusting off a 90s classic, an album that has been cited by many as one of the greatest of all time. When we recorded this episode, alt-rock fans everywhere were celebrating the 20th anniversary of this album. It's one that is a meditation on building something up only to watch it fall apart and finding the beauty in that. Your Record Club album this week is Radiohead's OK Computer. I did my research, and so like I knew where Tom York liked to have a beer. I knew where Ed O'Brien would go grocery shopping. Really, what I wanted to do that year was to meet members of Radiohead. Okay, let's take ourselves back to the year 1997 for a second. It was a year that brought us the movie Titanic, the band Hanson, and the death of Princess Diana— But it was also the year that the internet was beginning to enter the zeitgeist. Remember your first email address, for example? Monumental moment. But at the end of the millennium, there was an overwhelming uncertainty about the future as we grappled with this new form of technology and how it was going to affect our lives moving forward. Enter Radiohead's third studio album, OK Computer. The year before OK Computer was released, the band had just finished a four-year stretch of touring, reportedly only having one month off during the whole tour cycle. Needless to say, they had completely burnt themselves out, and as successful as their first two albums were, they had really started to feel the depression of being on the road, living off the recycled air of planes and hotel AC boxes, and feeling removed from the earth as it passed them by. After returning from the road, they went into a six-week lockdown with soon-to-be legendary producer Nigel Godrich. Radiohead distilled their feelings of alienation, wariness of consumerism, and moody isolation into OK Computer. The album was rich with sonic textures, incorporating elements of ambient, electronic, jazz, and classical music, citing influences like Miles Davis... Shadow. They also drew from a guided tour they took of Apple computers. The visit inspired them to use a Mac computer they called Fred on the song Fitter Happier. No paranoia. Careful to all animals. Never watching spiders done up like You could think of Fred as the grandfather of Siri. It's eerie, really, that they use Fred on OK Computer, given our current fixation with Apple products. The album was groundbreaking in its production and composition, but most importantly, the lyrics of the album were what really mattered. 
It captured the pre-millennium dread the world was beginning to feel as computers began to take over our lives. As I've talked about before on the show, 1997, the year OK Computer was released, was also the year I started my first band. We were a pop rock group that bonded over a mutual love of Hanson, the Beatles, and somehow Radiohead. To our teen brains, OK Computer was perfection. Flash forward a few years later, we were signed to Warner Brothers, the home of Radiohead's entire catalog. Our band found success in Japan, as the cliche goes, and while on tour, we had the chance to meet guitarist Johnny Greenwood. We were staying at the same hotel as Radiohead in Tokyo and saw him one night from across the lobby. We started freaking out, losing our little minds, so our interpreter Masako, who knew him from working with Radiohead before, waved him down to say hello and introduce us. It was a completely chance encounter, one that was really powerful for me. You know, they always say never meet your idols, but Johnny Greenwood was delightful. We chatted for a minute, obviously took a picture, and parted ways. I felt so cool. Our first storyteller, Francois Marchand, will know what I mean when I say that meeting your idols isn't always bad because he had the luck to meet not one, but two members of Radiohead. What I want to talk about is, is how uh, Tom York actually sent me on a mission from God. And <laughs> that, might, that might sound like an exaggeration, but it's true. And I mean, you think you get Radiohead, but, but I get Radiohead. Like, <laughs> like, I really, really get Radiohead. Like, I get Radiohead the way religious people get religion. I get OK Computer the way people get the Bible. Like, this is my scripture. OK Computer has been everything to me for about 20 years. And I can't believe it's been 20 years. So I'm going to take you back in time a bit. So picture a uh, 19-year-old guy lives in the suburbs of Montreal, French-Canadian dude with uh, a little bit of an addiction to dystopian sci-fi and video games, and uh, he works at a cable company part-time, and he's studying to become a journalist, and he's manic and obsessive about music. So the uh, date is June 16, 1997, and this guy who's obsessed about Orwell and Huxley and Philip K. Dick and Chomsky is driving his dad's Nissan Altima, Um, down the streets of Brossard, Quebec, going to Future Shop to pick up OK Computer. And he's been waiting to get this album for quite some time. So he gets to Future Shop, picks up the record, and I slip the disc into my portable CD player that's hooked up to the tape deck, and Airbag comes on. And this is the first time I hear Airbag in my entire life And as I sit in my dad's Nissan Altima, the word airbag is staring back at me from the steering wheel of the car. And for some reason, which is fate, I guess, is uh, the fact that the word airbag is written in the exact same font as it is written on the album cover. The name of that font, by the way, is Franklin Gothic. So there's a connection there. So the word airbag is staring back at me And I feel like this is just for me. This album is obviously made just for me. And for the next few months, all I'm doing 
is channeling all those feelings of alienation and fear about the future, and I'm 19 and I'm saturated in, you know, again, early internet adopter, uh, computers, cable, and I'm transiting every day for an hour and a half, taking the train, driving a car, stuck in transit, stuck in a crowd, and OK Computer just speaks to me. Now we get to the point where I meet Tom York. So in August 1997, I'm outside the Metropolis venue in Montreal, which is a great sci-fi name, by the way, if you know the movie by Fritz Lang. And outside the venue, I'm there about three and a half hours early, waiting in line to see the band play. And Phil Selway is just down the alley, and he's hanging out, kind of scoping out the scene. So I decide I should go and say hi, because I really get it. And I need to make that point to someone from Radiohead that I really, really get what they're doing. So I go over there, and I have a copy of 1984 in my pocket. Because, of course, I have a copy of 1984 in my pocket. So I'm talking to Phil, and I take the book out, and I say, can you give this to Tom to let him know that I really really get it. <laughs> so in that moment, I turned Phil Selway into my errand boy to talk to Tom. So I'm basically telling the drummer that I really get what the singer is doing. <laughs> he signs my ticket and he laughs a little bit and he's like, okay, I'll get, I'll get the message across. And I go back in line and I feel like this is kind of where everything came together. So I wait for another three and a half hours to get into the show, and of course it's absolute magic. From the first moment, I'm just literally swept off my feet when they kick in with Lucky, and by the end of the show, Tom is doing a solo version of Killer Cars, which is a great B-side, and of course Killer Cars is all about me driving my dad's Nissan Altima down the suburban streets of Montreal, sneaking cigarettes with the window down so my dad doesn't smell it when he gets back in the car. And after the show, I kind of follow the crowd along, and we go behind the venue, and the tour bus is there, and everybody's hoping to see if the band's going to come out. And, and they do at one point, and all these fans are there, and I'm like, you guys don't get it. <laughs> There's a guy with a, his laptop in his hands, like an actual brick of a thing, right? This is 97. And he's, he's like, Tom, sign my laptop, sign my computer, OK computer. And I'm like, dude, seriously? You don't get it. And Tom comes out, and I kind of finagle my way through and just find my way. And I actually get to talk to him for a few seconds. And I get him to sign my ticket, and I say, did you get the present I gave Phil to give you? Because I really want you to know that I really get it. He actually says, yes, that was, that was really nice. Thank you very much. And this is everything to me. This makes my entire life at this point. I've actually got an acknowledgement that Tom Yard gets that I get it. Now, this album has followed me for my entire life. It's, it's like permeated everything that I do. It kind of encapsulated my hurry and my rush to get out of Montreal and, and pursue a career in, in music writing and reporting and journalism and my obsession with media. It's found ways inside my personal life, too, in, in weird ways. Like, my wife's birthday is June 16th. 
But that can't be random, right? There's, that's fate, right? Like everything is connected. But it's, it's kind of true in a way. Like these things influence you in ways that you can't imagine. And OK Computer has been my blueprint. And now that I find myself 20 years later revisiting the album, uh, it takes on a completely different meaning to me. My dad was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer earlier this year. And when I think back to 1997, I don't see OK Computer with the same kind of fear and anxiety uh, anymore. And by the way, I, maybe part of my career as a music writer has been to try to chase that interview with Tom again so I could you know, tell him that I still get it. And, and maybe we could tell each other our, our deepest fears and truths about life. In a recent interview, maybe the interview I wanted to do all my life with Rolling Stone talking about OK Computer, Tom said um, that he would tell his 1997 self to lighten the fuck up. <laughs> and thinking about 1997 now, and thinking about my dad, and thinking about how far I've come, and, uh, and how blessed I've been my entire life to, to be doing what I do, I'd like to maybe tell my 1997 self something. And maybe I'd like to tell him that he doesn't have to fear the little suburban life with the garden. He doesn't have to fear to go back and connect with the people that mean the most to him. And maybe, hey man, slow down, and you get it, and you've got this, and for the love of Tom, please lighten the fuck up. <laughs> Thank you. Despite being universally critically acclaimed, Radiohead is pretty divisive. It's admittedly a very male-centric band, and in my experience, there have been countless times where mansplaining the virtues of OK Computer has almost ruined them for me. I mean, everyone knows that guy from high school or the rogue young man playing paranoid android in the guitar shop, or young woman, but you know what I mean. Uh, however, its influence on music since its release is undeniable. But what if you're one of the brave souls that publicly admits that they can't stand Radiohead, despite hearing it everywhere, including your own house? Our next storyteller, Rachel Fox, had this exact dilemma. This is kind of funny for me because uh, Radiohead isn't my band, and OK Computer is not my album at all. So... I was cool. I used to be cool. I worked at I did. I worked at a radio station when I was in high school because you know that's what you did in the '90s. And then I came out here and I started school, and I met this guy. Um, you can count the red flags with me. Uh, he worked at my local video store. We talked a lot. I rented a lot of movies. Um, he was really charming and nice, and um, we got along. I, I enjoyed talking with him. He looked like a plumper, not quite as romantical, John Cusack, red flag number two. <laughs> and, you know, we, we just got to know each other and, and, and started to hang out, and it was probably maybe one of the first times in my life, I was, you know, 18, 19, something like that, where I kind of connected with this older guy who seemed really cool. 
I remember walking along like South Granville Street and we'd pop into shops and it was like, how come everybody knows who you are? All these women. Um, I was like, he's really popular. Fast forward a little bit. And uh, we ended up actually uh, moving in together. Uh, We were, it was a two bedroom. It was that kind of relationship again, I think when when you're young, when you experience for the first time, like what is this connection? And it was really strong. It was really profound. It was, it was chemical. We had an amazing, amazing chemistry. We were like a vaudeville team. We played off of each other. We were like hilarious. But on the other flip side of that, it was fucking awful. It was toxic. He was, he was a terrible person. I, when I think back about this, and this, it doesn't end well. You can tell it's not going to end well. I always think, you know, I'm profoundly grateful that the first real relationship I had was, like, with the absolute worst person. <laughs> it was, like, not just the bottom of the barrel, but the bottom of the barrel of the barrel of the bottom of the barrel. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was a hard relationship, I think, because we, we got along so well, and yet we didn't. We went to, like, concerts all the time. I think we probably saw Radiohead a few times. We went you know, all the time. And, and I remember like when we first met, when, when we first started to meet and he was probably wooing me in the video store and I was telling him how cool I was because I interviewed the Gandharvas. So anyway, so fast forward, we're living together and um, I just wasn't happy. And I, and I feel like at that stage of my life, I didn't know how to like, like move beyond that of being with this person. We were volatile. We used to fight a lot. We used to fight. And I remember, um, I remember one time we had a fight because uh, some some girl was staying over in my apartment and I was, I was supposed to be cool about it, but I didn't really feel cool about it. And I, I walked to the beach barefoot just to get away. Because that's what you do in the summer when you're 20 and stupid. So yeah, it was, it was volatile and, um, and I wasn't happy and I was sort of stuck in this place and I, and I lost myself. And this is where the Radiohead thing comes in. So for me, the reason I don't like OK Computer and I cringe a little bit whenever I hear it is because it was like our sex album. (laughs) And I think initially it was like I was, you know, young and I enjoyed this person and we got on. And then over time as I started to really hate him and be angry with him because we clashed so much and he was, again, a really terrible person. um, I feel like the sex album kind of changed and, and, and my acquiescing, shall we say, changed. So this music, this soundtrack to something that, you know, was supposed to be beautiful, so they say, wasn't. It was like this music in the background. And for me, I lost myself because I disassociated sexually completely. And what I associated was the music. So to me, like when I hear this music, when I hear all these songs, I think about disassociating and being with this person physically, intimately, and, and all I had to cling to was the music. Like, okay, what song is next? Are we there yet? Is it over? And that's the association or the disassociation. As things progressed and they got worse and I was just unhappy and I didn't know how to get out of the situation. Like I just was like, I don't wanna be here anymore. I don't wanna be here anymore. And the fights got worse. We used to have set lists. I went to, we went to a lot of concerts. You know, the CDs, they were all mixed together, everything like that. We were in that place. Anyway, all along the living room were all these set lists for the concerts that we went to and we went to a lot. And I remember at one of these fights I stood on a chair and I grabbed the set list down. He's like, don't do it, don't do it. Page and plan. 
I remember another time we had a fight and it was the same sort of thing. He had these speakers that he really loved. He was very proud of them. And I was angry about something. And I remember I pulled off that, that cover on the speaker. These were big speakers. I pulled it off and I was like, he's like, don't do it, don't do it. And I was like, over the knee, out the window. <laughs> 13 floors up. And I became this person that I didn't recognize and I was really cognizant of that. Towards the end, when um, another woman moved into my apartment. I think he was amused. He'd be like, Rachel, come hang out with us in the living room. And I'd be like, I'm good in my room. And then I was in the kitchen. And um, he was there. And I think he was teasing me because he could see how angry I was. And I, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to, I didn't know how to say to somebody like, I hate you. And I started punching him. And he thought it was funny. I don't have any upper body strength. I'm like, you know, whatever. But I just remember as I was doing it, I'm like, who am I? What am I doing? Like, I lost myself. And I I turned 21. And my parents were um, going away. They were going to India. And they said, Rachel, come with us for your 21st birthday. I thought, okay, I'm going to go. And I remember I went. and And I remember when I was there the whole time, I was like, I am not thinking about this person at all. I'm really happy. Oh my God, I, could, I don't have to have this person in my life. I can get out of there. When I got back to the apartment, after being gone for, I don't know, six weeks, eight weeks, he was like so glad to see me. He's like, oh, we gotta get rid of this girl. She's really, we, she can't stay here. And I was like, really zen, like, oh, do what you like. And before I left, um, I, you know, this was a while ago, um, I remember I, I left like, you know, these documents, this is my passport numbers, my credit card numbers, my bank card information, because I thought, like, if I get kidnapped in India, I'm going to call him, and he's going to be able to help me and sort it out. Anyway, so he told me, he's like, oh, 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 listen, listen, listen. He's like, don't, don't, don't hate me, but he's like, um, uh, we, I had to take some money out of your bank account. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a lot of money, and that was like my ransom money. So I was like, well, like, for what? And he's like, oh, 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 um, there was like a limited edition Blur Park Life CD where the, the dogs on the cover, their eyes lit up. And um, he had to buy it on eBay. So um, he had the girl pretend she was me to my bank so that he could move money into his bank, my ransom money, so that he could buy his limited edition CD. Fast forward a little bit more, and, and my life did change. I, I found myself a little bit. I got a new job. I started working at a record store. I worked at Virgin for a while. And I met new people, and I was like, oh, somebody needs somebody to live in a house. I can just go live in this house. And that's what I did. I, I just kind of picked up and, and moved on. Um, I remember the day that I left. I didn't tell him that I was leaving until... Like, I absolutely had to, because I had this feeling like he's going to do something. I know it. And he did. He trashed my room. And this is, of course, after that conversation I had with my mom, where she could tell I was so miserable, but couldn't really figure out why. And she said to me, has he hit you yet? And I thought, oh, my God, no. (laughs) Like, no, he had, no, no. But the idea that my mother actually would ask me that, like was I putting that out there in the world, was I that miserable? And, and yeah, I was, it was not a good situation. I moved out, life went on, it took me a really long time to get the money for the Park Life CD back. Um, eventually I did. So 
I guess the conclusion here, when I think about this situation, which, you know, doesn't really have an end because I think about it a lot, about, like, losing myself and my inability to listen to OK Computer from start to finish, I think. Maybe now is the time, if I listen to it, like, oh, I'll be free. And I've decided, no, um, I don't need to listen to OK Computer. Um, I feel like they did their, their job for me. Tom York held my hand all those times. Um, we're good. I think sometimes it's good to unpack. I've unpacked here. But I think it's also good sometimes to pack and put things away. It's like Jumanji, you know? You know what's in the box, but you don't have to open it because you know what's gonna happen if you do. So I guess in conclusion, what I wanted to say about all of this is that like, when I think about who I was, because I used to be so cool, and that I lost myself, and, and, and I had to go through something to kind of find myself. And the person that I found was probably different than the person that I lost. And maybe that's what growth is, and maybe that's life, and that's maybe what changes. And uh, hopefully, um, yeah, everybody can kind of move through it together. That's all I got. common line of praise and critique of OK Computer is that it's dark and depressing. But for many who discovered this album, it had become a portal to better understand their own anxiety around technology and mental health struggles. It's not everyone's go-to for tough times, but for some, this album can soundtrack an undescribable funk or challenging moment, like a friend who commiserates and knows just what to say. This last story is told by Chris Brandt. Chris is the former executive director of Music Heals, a group devoted to raising money and awareness for music therapy. In his story, he shares how he found solace in OK Computer when his health took a turn and when he needed a bit of music therapy himself. Music speaks to us in so many ways, and my day job is to amplify the power of music through the practice of music therapy. If any of us were to walk into a hospital and play some Radiohead, it's entertainment. It might be therapeutic if the patient actually likes Radiohead, but it's not music therapy. Music therapy is only such when it's uh, performed by an accredited music therapist. And music is used for non-music goals. So in a NICU, where the greatest challenge is getting a preemie to gain enough weight so it can go home, preemies working with a music therapist gain weight faster, go home sooner. In a place like the Children's Hospice, the greatest fear that we hear from the parents, other than the impending loss of their child, is the fear that they're going to forget the sound of their kid's voice. So we do programs with them where we're helping the child and recording them, but those become legacy recordings for the families. There's a bereavement program that we work with, helping people process loss. Uh, and we had a client earlier this year, 50 years old, uh, but developmentally delayed, Down syndrome. So functionally, I was told he was about a 12-year-old, couldn't articulate the loss and process the loss of his father. So his music therapy was to sit at the drum kit and just beat the shit out of it. Just hit it hard, get it out. And at St. Paul's Hospital is a palliative care program. Where earlier this year, there was a gentleman from the downtown east side, no visitors, no family, and all he wanted to do was hear some Neil Young. And a music therapist came in and worked with him, played some Neil Young, and by the end of the song, he was gone. So my attachment to Radiohead does not come from 20 years ago. It's a therapeutic one that comes from three years ago, uh, when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. 
I, and I've never called myself a cancer survivor. I prefer the term cancer graduate because I learned a ton. Most people that get prostate cancer are in their 70s. And I think I broke the record for all of my doctors because I was 42. I found that a lot of the, uh, the support that was available didn't really resonate with me because it was gentlemen who had had kids for sure and the support groups mostly had guys who had grandchildren. I was single at the time. Everything is great now. I didn't mean for that part to be heavy. It's all healthy, all good. Um, and I'm married now, which is great. So happy with all that. But I was, I was single at the time, so my process was so much different. And being a yoga teacher, I'm surrounded by a lot of friends who are psychics and shamans and stuff like that. And a shaman friend of mine said, well, there's a reason why you're single going through this, because you need to go through this alone. Of course, we all need shaman friends to tell us stuff. <laughs> and of course, I wasn't alone. I had family and friends to help me get through it. But going through any process that's traumatic for you, sometimes it's that song that helps you get through, or that song that in hindsight puts a magnifying glass on the process. And for me, going through that process, from diagnosis to finally the surgery, Karma Police came on. And there's that one line of the song that, of course, repeats to add weight to it. For a minute, I lost myself. And it's very poignant that, of course, that line keeps on going through the last couple minutes of the song. And when you're going through a process like that, the evolution that comes afterwards is there's weight to what you went through. But for a minute, I lost myself. But I'm back. And so that song has become a catalyst. That line has become a catalyst. And it's a directive to police your own karma. Thanks very much. That's Record Club for this week. For our next episode, we'll be hearing stories relating to a Canadian icon and his breakthrough album. It was a behemoth of a record that defined the folk rock aesthetic of the 70s that still reverberates today. Your Record Club album for next week is Neil Young's Harvest. When Neil showed up, it was my job to take him back to the place and smoke some pot with him and get high. And then bring him back, of course. Record Club is a Kelly and Kelly production. It is recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It is produced by Chris Kelly, Max Collins, and Jody Camilleri. Record Club was created and produced by Lizzie Carp and Ken Soy and recorded at a Hear There event. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, spread the word about it, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Louise Burns. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.